Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. At Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, our mission is focused on the conservation of our favorite upland game birds through habitat improvements, public access, education, and conservation advocacy. You'll notice that the word research doesn't show up in our mission statement. That's a question that comes up quite often. While it's true that research isn't part of our nonprofit organization's mission, we do pay very close attention to the research being done and collaborate with the nation's leading game bird researchers across the country. A couple weeks ago, we had uh, Dwayne Elmore from Oklahoma State University on this podcast, um, talking about those those collaborations and some of his research. On today's podcast, we're going back to school (laughs) for a discussion with one of our valued collaborative research partners focused on the Southeastern United States bobwhite quail populations. From Mississippi State University, uh, we're thrilled to have Dr. Mark McConnell joining us for this episode and riding shotgun with me. Uh, I've got two co-hosts today. They're they're back for the podcast. Andy Edwards, Quail Forever's Quail Program Manager, and our gopher tortoise expert, our doctor of our very own, Dr. Jessica McGuire. We'll call her Jess because that's what everybody uh, all of our coworkers call her Jess. Quail Forever's Working Lands for Wildlife, Bob White Quail Coordinator. Um, and our listeners will be excited to know as we talk with uh, Dr. McConnell, Mark, he is not only one of the world's uh, foremost researchers for Bob White Quail, he's a hardcore bird hunter. So there'll be some bird hunting conversation as well. Uh, thank you all for joining today. Uh, really excited. Mark, I've, I've known you a little bit for the last couple of years. I was trying to pin down exactly how I first met you, and I think it was at an all-team meeting in, in Iowa. Is, do, am I remembering correctly, Mark? It was either that one or uh, it was at the one of y'all's executive board meetings in St. Paul. I sat next to you and introduced myself, and, and then I, we had been sharing each other stuff on Twitter, I think. And then that's, that's the first time I remember, but I was right before that, I think. So <laughs> at the board meeting, I might've been skittish from being in front of the board. So I, you know, I like went into vapor lock and don't remember that at all. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll ask you to uh, give us a deep dive interview into your background, but let me, um, let me go around the horn. We'll start with Andy Batten lead off. Um, tell, tell our listeners for folks that maybe haven't listened to all the episodes, um, a little bit about you and and your background and and then we'll jump to Jess. Yeah, sure. Hey, Andy Edwards, uh, program manager for quail forever. I've been around this, uh, been around the bird club here for a long time since 2003 started as a regional biologist up in Indiana with pheasants forever. And when quail forever came about, uh, I got the tap because I was the only guy from the South and uh, got to go help help out in the Southeast, move home to Pulaski, Tennessee, 
and have, have been there since 2006 and and worked as many as eight states in the southeast and kind of whittled that down over the years as a rep and and just recently in march became the program manager for the quail forever side and just love it man get to get to kind of go out and and uh i definitely don't have the figure for it but i get to go out and be the cheerleader every day for the organization <laughs> and uh just just all things quail forever and help elevate the brand within our organization and, and just uh also externally uh, connecting great partners and players um, all to benefit quail out on the land so. cool well thank you for joining this episode and i teased jess in the intro about our, our gopher tortoise expert jess mcguire now I, on social media here recently jess i haven't talked about this with you personally but i i saw you recognized with an award connected to gopher tortoises on facebook what what was that award thanks i i appreciate the recognition it was a um, an award from the gopher tortoise council um, it's an organization that I've been a part of ever since I was working on my PhD work with UGA um, and someone, an uh, organization I work with a lot for conservation. So I was really honored to be given the Distinguished Service Award um, after, you know, just putting in time and working in the conserving the uplands and gopher tortoise and, you know, everything we love about the habitat. So. Yeah, that, it, that's cool. And for folks that maybe didn't listen a couple years ago. To the episode that you were on talking about bob white quail in the southeast and the connection between bob white quail and gopher tortoises for folks yep. that didn't hear that connection what is the connection between this this giant gopher tortoise and our our favorite little bob white quail yeah so they um utilize the same habitat you know both are important parts of the uplands uh the gopher tortoise burrow you know, over 360 species have been documented inside that burrow using it. You know, it can mm. go really deep in the ground. Um, I've heard the burrow called an air raid shelter for quail. So, you know, they can kind of duck in when those hawks, <laughs> hawks are flying over through the migration. But uh, yeah, so, I mean, c conservation for quail, conservation for birds, it all overlaps in a lot of areas in the southeast. So what you do for one can benefit the other for sure. And that's it's really well connected. It's I love that connection because we talk I, I frequently bring it up on podcasts is, you know, we all learn about the web of life mm -hmm. as third graders. Along the way, we sort of forget about it. Right. Yep. It, and then to have it brought back to us in something as incongruous, at least on the surface, as gopher tortoises and bob white quail and how how much they're linked together, I think is a great reminder that so many things benefit from our habitat mission. You know, yep. water quality, yep. soil health, climate, you know, carbon sequestration, gopher tortoises, public access, you know, just any the linkage is just nonstop. And to, to think about it with the tortoise as being an air raid shelter for bobwhites, I think yeah. makes the point pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell, tell our listeners just a little bit more about your background. You mentioned um, going going to school. Where, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Um, and what, you, yeah. what do you do for the organization? So I, I grew up all over the East Coast, but spent most of my time growing up in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, made my way down to the southeast to work on my PhD and just fell in love with the longleaf pine ecosystem. And that led to some great 
opportunities um, working with your, uh, Georgia Department of Natural Resources, and then um, finally landed uh, with here with Quail Forever. I think I'm heading into my third year now. Pheasant Fest will be year three. Um, mm -hmm. So I work with the Working Lands for Wildlife Partnership with um, USDA NRCS, and uh, that's where you know I'm I'm really excited to have Mark on a podcast with us because you know we're pushing that whole farm planning with our producers and letting them see where we can fit in. Um, so it's just a great uh, use of tools. And um, it's been a lot of fun watching the research that Mark does really just expand uh, where we can get in for conservation and to help producers. So um, it's kind of what we all work on. That was an expert transition. Like you should ride uh, co-host more often. Mark, <laughs> she set it up perfectly. Tell yeah, us a little great. bit. Yeah. Tell <laughs> us a little bit about your background and uh, um, the role that you play today. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I grew up in North Louisiana and uh, didn't see a quail till I was 21 years old. And it was actually in Northern Arkansas of all places. And so I didn't grow up in the quail world and, uh, but worked on a farm and uh, went to LSU for my undergrad and always thought I'd be a duck researcher and um, came to miss, I became obsessed with quail after seeing my first one because I'd never seen one before. And I, mm was working on my great uncle's farm and was bush hogging one day. And he said, you see any quail? And I was like, what are you talking about? What's a quail? And uh, it just infuriated me that I hadn't seen one. So I saw one shortly after that and just became mildly obsessed and read everything I could and uh, decided I probably needed to continue my education in graduate school. So I came to Mississippi State and worked with uh, Wes Berger, who was the leading quail researcher across the eastern United States at the time. And uh, just, I don't know, just fell in love with it. It was a dream come true and uh, was lucky or naive enough to stay on for a PhD, whichever way you want to look at it. <laughs> and uh, end up working with uh, Dr. James Martin and Westberger, who, you know, you're going to have James on soon and yep. got to work with Tall Timbers Resource Station, which was probably one of the bigger joys of my career. And yeah, so I just kind of got into quail, I guess, later and in, in, I didn't grow up with it. And uh, honestly just started being able to hunt them in the last you know five or six years so um yeah that's that's and then, oh i'm here at mississippi state now uh my official title is assistant professor of upland birds so i cover quail turkeys um and just trying to do any kind of research we can to help hmm. managers or policymakers have good information to make decisions on you know you bring up westberger's name and i i got i have to get wes on on the podcast i was thinking you know, the, my very first introduction to quail was through Westberger and Dr. Bill Palmer oh, yeah. um, on a duck hunt in Stuttgart, Arkansas. Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> um, yeah, just, you know, those two gentlemen, just a wealth of knowledge about quail. And we've had um, Dr. Bill Palmer on a couple years ago, but we got to get Wes on too. Yeah, he's, um, he'd be great. You mentioned uh, you're a quail hunter. Do you have a, a pup, a bird dog? Well, I, was, I probably shouldn't have mentioned that because I knew this would come Man, up. Come <laughs> yeah, we want to hear all about it. All right. Bring it. Yes. All right. I currently hunt with a standard poodle. Now, yes. uh, I'm getting, I was Clay Sisson who uh, runs the Albany Quail Research Program. Clay told me when I started my PhD, no one would take me seriously as a quail biologist until I had a dog that pointed. Mm -hmm. So I've got a, a, a pointing breed. Uh, coming. Uh, in fact, litter just hit the ground yesterday. Uh, so I'm bringing it home in bringing him home in February. 
but I, my wife, I was mainly just a duck hunter and, uh, my, my hunting dogs were spoiled rotten and sleep in the bed with me or my children. And I needed a dog in the house that could, my wife's allergies could tolerate. So I got a standard poodle and I've hunted with her all over the country. We duck hunted in eight States. Uh, we've hunted pheasants in Kansas and Oklahoma, quail in Oklahoma. And we hunt a lot of woodcock down here. She's about 11 years old now. So she's, she's mm. getting on up there and she went deaf last year. All she can hear is the whistle now. Okay. Uh, but I've got a poodle pointer coming, uh, which is a German wire hair breed coming in February. Uh, so trying to get something that could do a little bit of both worlds, uh, point and go pick up ducks whenever I needed to. You know, I, um, people think that I might be a German short hair snob, <laughs> but I'm not. I love all breeds. And it, I do find it fascinating how many standard poodles there are in within our membership ranks. I mean, oh, honestly, there's a lot, yeah. lot of folks. Um, I think about Bob Larson, a former member of our National Board of Directors, had standard poodle, just a terrific hunting dog. And, you know, so I... I it, I, I'm not going to give you any grief because I've <laughs> I've seen standard poodles, I've seen Airedale terriers, mm-hmm. I've seen Jack Russell terriers, I've seen Blue Heelers, all of those breeds that maybe aren't your traditional bird dogs that are fantastic, including you know some that probably are a blend of six different breeds, right? Yeah. You well, know? all of them probably are to some degree. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, to each their own. And it, you do, I do also find it sort of fascinating how many allergy oriented households end up uh, turning to the poodle and the poodle pointer as a result of, um, you know, somebody in the family having pretty sensitive allergies. Have you found poodles and, and poodle pointers to be sort of a relief from from that concern well i'm hoping my wife doesn't listen so it's kind of a gamble with the uh, poodle pointer it mm-hmm. should be l- less of an issue than say some other breeds the poodle we've had nothing but success with um wow. just been tremendous um really almost no shedding like it, it's just it's just incredible uh and just a wonderful house dog if you if i have a dog that you know lives and is a part of the family member in the home and a hunting dog. That breed has just been tremendous and adjusting to your energy level. And uh, so uh, uh, to sell my wife on the poodle pointer, I was like, all right, we, it's probably not going to shed that much, you know? (laughs) And then she was, I was talking to the breeder one day and taking notes. And I mentioned on there, just in my notes might shed more than I'd said. And I thought I'd put that note away. And then she found it a few days later and she's like, what's this? And I was like, "Uh, it's going to be fine. Let's just just wait it out. And uh, but it's the puppies are here now in a few weeks i'll take her up there to see the puppies and uh, she'll she'll be good to go but she's been very supportive i sure hope it works out for you otherwise uh um you guys may be adopting a dog well that or you have a comfortable couch in the living room yeah there you go yeah (laughs) uh we're gonna talk on this episode about uh mark and his students research that's going to be the focus before we jump into that i want to shout out uh, to onyx onyx hunt apps uh, the number one gps hunting map for bird hunters and with the most trusted and accurate map data to boot you'll be able to find more birds across the country and mark your favorite coveys so you can always find your favorite spots download the app for a risk-free seven-day trial and use the code pheasants or quail 
during the checkout process for 20% off at onyxhunt.com. And uh, probably heard my bird dogs in the background. They approve of <laughs> they yeah. approve of Onyx. Great, I mean, yeah. It was like you had a producer hit the soundboard there. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of those Man. short hairs, That's um, right. some of that new stuff right. they've got, some of that cover that that uh, land cover data is pretty amazing. I used it uh, this year in Michigan, and it absolutely uh, was very beneficial. Yeah, it's and they continue to add layers at Onyx that yep. uh, you know whether you're a hunter or, you know, some of the work they're doing towards habitat um, management and evaluation is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, All right. Quail research. I want to start kind of conceptually, Mark, how do these research concepts come to be? Like, do you have a, a running list of them on your desk with ideas? Do students bring you concepts? Do state agencies confer with you and say, hey, we really want to know about this? Like, talk us through the like the creation process for a research idea. Yeah, well, the short answer is all of the above. I mean, okay. uh, yeah, I definitely keep a running list of that's what I love about my job. I get to wake up every day and try to answer questions. Hmm. Um, that's that's the the fun of, of being an academic. In academia. So yeah, I have a running list of, of projects I want to do. Some I think people will pay for, some I don't think people will pay for. Uh, <laughs> some of the best advice I got in academia one time was you don't get to always do just the projects you want to do. You get to do the projects people are willing to pay for. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that, that is the case sometimes. But uh, part of this job is being a little bit of a salesman. You got to convince people there are some questions worth pursuing. Uh, we do have some students that come through uh, some of the really, really just high functioning students will come in with their own research questions and there's nothing, nothing better to an academic than when that happens. Mm. But then also a lot of the state agencies and organizations and feds come, I mean, uh, like Jess, Jess represents working lands for wildlife. Um, uh, her boss, Bridget saw me, uh, Costanza saw me present at a conference one time and we formed a relationship after that. And it's leading to a, uh, a funded project that kind of married some of my interests with some of their interests and, huh. and to, to benefit quail across the range. So all those things come together. And, uh, but yeah, I've got a list that I keep in a, you know, under lock and key of <laughs> research projects. And, uh, the real great thing about graduate students is, is it, when you share those, some of those ideas with them, and then they oftentimes from that conversation, you can come up with new ideas. So it's their sure. input and your input that creates something new. And that's watching their developments, probably the, the most rewarding part of this job is, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, we're trying to answer questions that help a landowner or a manager or a policymaker, you know, make an informed decision. That's we're trying to reduce uncertainty in quail management. Really so I'm going to try to help a brother out. The number one idea on your list that you just can't get funded. <laughs> let's 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 oh, put wow. it out there for the pheasants forever and quail forever audience let's let's no pressure get, this is yeah. this is the GoFundMe GoFundMe yeah. Mark's idea what's that idea I'm really reluctant to tell you because then somebody <laughs> else may hear it and then figure out a way to fund it um, there's there's a lot of idea uh, lifting in, in academia sometimes so you got to be careful um, I've got a uh, a lot of the stuff on my precision ag side of my, my research program, I've kind of got a split program. I've got quail, you know, on the ground stuff. And then I've got some precision ag stuff that I'm working with Jess's crew and uh, with, but 
that stuff being a little more cutting edge mm. technology, it's not always something that people are ready to throw money at. We've seen an increase in the amount of people that want to throw money at over time. But yeah, I've got a, I hadn't quite scratched the surface on what I don't do on that, that topic yet, because the, there's just not as much uh, interest in our application yet, but, um, but it's coming. And, and the, the project working lens for wildlife is, is helping us with and is, is a good example that there's a need for this stuff. And, uh, more and more people want to get exposed to it. Okay. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of tough because, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're both mutually interested in, it's kind of that middle of the road type of stuff. You know, it's not quite fully ag. It's not all conservation. Mm. You know, we're kind of in that middle space that no one explicitly funds. You know, it needs to be one or the other. So mm. you try to find projects that'll kind of, you know, swerve a little bit and, and funds you know, dual interests and still get to your goal and your deliverable at the end. But that's what grad students are for is kind of pick up those side, you know, those side things and hopefully, you know, get to where you want to be to show that, hey, this is important. Let's expand on this. And then hopefully I can harass Mark some more uh, <laughs> for another project. <laughs> well, and then you probably can have one project going on the wildlife side and one project going on the ag side that are parallel and sort of marry the two results together. I'm, I'm guessing mm -hmm. that happens on occasion. No, that's the direction we're going. We want to be able to put them both together. And, um, mm -hmm. and like I said, the, the whole, what we're trying to do is fill knowledge gaps and, and reduce uncertainty in certain decisions. And mm. we, you know, I don't want a landowner to do anything for quail or a state wildlife management area or a federal agency. I don't want them to make any decisions that they don't have a certain degree certainty about what the outcome is going to be. We don't always have, you know, we never have perfect certainty, but we're just trying to reduce the uncertainty so that people can be confident in their decision-making and make good decisions. Right on. All right. So we're going to talk about, I keep te teasing this. We're going to talk about some of what research projects you have going on. But last question on the background is how long from start to finish do these projects happen? Because my assumption is, well, grad student is in for two years or four years. So every project's going to be roughly two or four years, right? Depending on what their pathway is. Is it fit in that cooker cookie cutter box like that? Or is it not so simple? It, it generally fits somewhere in there uh, for graduate research projects. What I've tried to do with some of my research is kind of, it's a bigger question that I need one student to answer part A than that mm. leads to part B. And um, so sometimes a, the real question doesn't get answered at the level we want it for more than four or five years sometimes. But yeah, most master students take two, two and a half, most PhDs four, four and a half. So yeah, that's kind of the time frame. But we're trying to answer questions incrementally through there. We, we usually don't wait to the very end to have to, to just start producing outputs. Uh, some, some, some timeline in there, we're trying to throw a little bit of information uh, at the public as, as it comes out so we can, we can use it to move forward. So as a preparation for this podcast, you and I had a conversation, kind of ran me through a number of the different research projects you had going on. And this was the one that jumped to mind first for me. And you called it scale of effect research project. And um, so, so let's start there. Walk us through kind of the premise of the scale of effect, what you're trying to prove out with this research project. 
Yeah, well, there's it, it's a general term that gets gets used not as probably as much as it should. But you know, we have all these management practices we do and things we carry out, but we don't often know the how far they benefit, say, a quail population over space, right? And uh, so you think about things like uh, the CRP practices. Uh, James Martin's lab published some great research showing that, you know, generally, and I'll let, I won't jump on his topics, but the closer some of these CRP grasslands are to each other, the more benefit they have to the bobwhite landscape versus if one's here and one's five miles away, right? They don't benefit as much. But that, that's, a, that's an effect of the scale of that management practice. And we wanted to uh, do a project with the, on some wildlife management areas in Mississippi. A lot of people don't realize we, we do have, you know, wild birds on a number of wildlife management areas down here and federal properties too. We're no longer considered a destination state like we may have been in the past, but uh, we do get some non-resident hunters. We have a handful, a good number of resident hunters in the state and the state does a tremendous job, the Mississippi Department of Wildlife Fisheries of on these areas of managing for Bob White. And I wanted to really understand better what that impact was at the, you know, so you're managing quail in a wildlife management area, how far beyond the boundaries of that management area are you benefiting a quail population? Mm -hmm. you know? And then within the WMA, what about these areas you're managing more intensively? How, how much, how far does that, does the quail population benefit from, from that, that management and at that scale? And I think what that'll do is, is give wildlife management areas a better understanding of how big of an impact they're having to the landscape around them, which would be, a, you know, I, State sure. agencies need, need to get some credit for the work they're doing. You know, the, there's a lot of great quail management on private land in Mississippi, but a lot of great management on public land, too. And uh, we want to document that and have a better understanding of how far that impact goes uh, to the quail population. And that's a question that's always been of interest to me. And uh, but it, I really got the idea in my head from from kind of watching some of the research on how CRP impacts uh, the Bob White landscape. So when I think about habitat management on a piece of ground and thinking about public land, I think about nesting cover, brood rearing cover, food, and maybe not applicable in, in Mississippi, but you can tell me wrong, but winter cover, thermal cover. And um, so, so by the look on your face, I might be wrong by wiping <laughs> that off the board, but so are you assessing all of those levels or forms of habitat sort of universally on these management areas? Are you assessing like, okay, if we improve nesting cover most specifically, then it has this scale of effect. Does that question make sense? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me, let me back up a little bit. And I think just based off my, I didn't, I haven't listened to Dwayne's podcast, but just after hunting with him last year, I guarantee he probably brought up the importance of, of shrub cover. Yes. hundred uh, percent. That's, that's kind of his, his one of the things he talks a lot about and, and thank goodness, but it does get underrepresented in the deep South. Uh, it doesn't get enough, uh, enough uh, focus, I guess. Yeah. Quail need nesting cover. And we've done a pretty good job of planting grass <laughs> around the, a lot of the areas in the Southeast. Uh, oftentimes maybe really thick grass. We need to thin out and mm -hmm. cover something we need, but shrub cover down here, thermal cover is a little bit different down here. We don't have the winters or the snow y'all have, but it gets to 105 degrees. Uh, right during the summer and quail need to find somewhere to loaf during the middle of the day to avoid that heat and avoid a predator and a nice little shrub thicket of blackberry or briars can be a great place for a quail to kind of hang out and it's definitely important not to mention we get a pretty impressive hawk migration through here at certain times of the fall and it's a really good place for a quail to hide is, is some shrub cover so we we definitely we definitely need all three of those down here 
in, in the in the context of that this specific research project, uh, which we're going to start in January, the student gets here in January. Um, we're not specifically going to break it down at the nesting brooding sure. cover habitat. We're going to kind of quantify the landscape, measure the, the the land cover variables, and then look at their burning regimes, uh, like how how frequently they're burning, the scale at which they're doing prescribed fire, the scale at which they're doing timber thinning in pine systems, uh, some of those practices. And kind of look at the impact of those prescribed fire I'm, I'm sure you've had plenty of people say on this podcast i cannot stress enough in the deep south it is absolutely essential yeah. to bob whites and gopher tortoises <laughs> but uh absolutely essential to keeping bob whites on the landscape burn 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 safely burn a lot burn as often as is <laughs> just about as you can and I'll get in trouble if I go too much further than that. No. So <laughs> I, my apologies to Dwayne, because you're right. He hundred percent up brought the uh, brush cover up and talked about how, you know, it is actually a way to decrease the temperature too for a place for, for, for quail when it's warm. So I, I failed Dwayne's class in, in, with my recall from that perspective. Um, so scale of effect, when you're talking about, you're, you're measuring these WMAs, when you, scale of effect are you looking for how far the the distribution goes of these birds based on beyond the public lands boundaries so or are you looking sheer number of birds that are created through public lands that spread out or or is it both both absolutely yeah, yeah. there i want to i want to know everything there is to know about how many quail are on the wma how quail density varies across the wma and then based off certain land cover you know, attributes. And then I also want to know how that, how that radiates, if at all, uh, mm -hmm. beyond the WMA. And like, I know a lot of private properties that I work on though, you know, it's, it's crazy once, you know, typically you're doing surveys somewhere near a road, sometime on the edge of a property. And I've numerous times start working on the property. They're not doing much quill work, but they've got birds. You don't hear many birds on the edge. And then after about several years, you start hearing birds on the neighbor's property mm -hmm. and you're like, all right, we're doing something here. And what I wanted to be able to do was understand that particular situation a little bit better. Right. Right. As you talk about this, something that comes to mind and it's sort of tangential, but you hear whether it's quail country, pheasant country, or heck the rough grouse woods where I grew up, you know, landowners say, gosh, I don't have birds here anymore. And you know, it, it, it looks the same way it did 20 years ago and we haven't done anything differently ultimately that's to the point the fact that they haven't done anything whether it's burning or you know disking or doing something that's critical right i mean no matter it's public land private land that if if a landowner finds themselves saying gosh i you know we haven't changed anything that's probably the problem right yeah, yeah. a lot of times it can be landowners you know I can't overstate their contribution to, to the potential for quail restoration and conservation. But one of the things that typically happens is, you know, they spend a lot of time on their land and they, they can document the, how things have changed on their land pretty good. But what I usually tell them to is go to Google earth, find your property and start zooming out a little bit. And as soon as you zoom out and you notice the land cover is a lot different than you remember it, start skulking or scoop, snooping around and, and zooming in and looking. And what we find is, the landscape has changed. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We are doing a lot of things differently at the landscape scale than we used to do. Hmm. Uh, but it, some landowners may not on their farm uh, or their property. But 
where if 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 all the neighbors were were lighting fires, you know, in March, sixty years ago, and they stopped doing that, you may not see that change in the vegetation as a, as a change, and but it, it's a big change into a, something like a bob white. That's a monumental change in the landscape. So I do hear that a lot, and uh, sometimes it's 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 true. They that landowner's done everything. They hmm. they've kept up doing things, and the landscape changed. Sometimes they don't realize just quite how subtle the differences they've made ha- have been to the Bob white Bob white, one of these birds, you can't take your, your eye off the ball. I mean, what's mm. it's, it's constant disturbance uh, from prescribed fire or disking or something to, to keep these populations, uh, you know, working well. And, and so that, that is a challenge, but a lot of times it's the neighbor and the neighbor effect. That's why I tell mm. landowners, if you're like, I had a guy call me the other day and he said, I've only got 40 acres. I can't really make a difference. And I said, absolutely you can. Mm-hmm. I was like, but you need to talk to your neighbors and they need to talk to their neighbors. And if y'all can share some common goals, uh, you can, you know, start to maybe see or hear quail on your property. Are you going to shoot four cubbies in a day? No, but uh, the, the effort can be there as long as these properties start to link up together. All right. You, um, appropriately transitioned it for me, see or hear quail. So you have a second research study focused on hearing quail, right? Absolutely. Yeah. This is at a, a, a farm in West Point, Mississippi, that we do a lot of quail research on and have over the years. And uh, I just, you know, if you do enough quail surveys and anybody who's done them can, can, can understand this frustration, there's some days where you you hear birds and then the next day you go to the same spot, you don't hear birds. And it is infuriating. You know, people always say, <laughs> yes. people always say turkeys will drive you, turkey hunting will drive you to drink. And I would say monitoring quail will drive you to drink. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I have been on so many in the, in the breeding season and in the fall, sat listening for a point, not seeing anything, and either watched a bird walk by huh. as soon as I was done doing the survey or flushed a covey that didn't wow. make a sound that morning as I'm walking out with it. And they were, you know, hundred yards from me. So mm-hmm. in the breeding season, we, you know, we go out, we listen to the, the male whistling cock surveys and we, it's an index of, you know, how the population's doing. And um, it's a lot, it's really fun and easy to do. It's a great way to train students and landowners get a big kick out of, you know, we'll always get the landowners involved, get them out there and they love hearing Bob White. But I was just getting infuriated with seeing birds and not hearing birds. Hmm. And so we put a bunch of radios on some birds. And uh, at the time, I thought I hadn't seen this published quite this way. And then I found out uh, Chris Latuma had done the research. I was on the phone with him one day about something else. He's like, oh, yeah, I did that research two years ago. And I'd missed the paper. So I had a great conversation with him. I was like, well, I'm sorry. I'm replicating it. But I've already started. And uh, he was he was super nice about it. But, yeah, we, we put radios on them. And we go out at night and re- we roost them. We see where they're roosting in the breeding season. And then the next morning we go back and we get about 50 meters away as quietly as we can and uh, point the radio telemetry to make sure the bird's still there. And then we listen that morning, how many times they sing, the males go Bob white, Mm -hmm. but we also record how many males around them are Bob whiting too. Mm. And so far we've just got one year data and the grad student was just in here earlier today. uh, And we're looking at that relationship and it does seem to be, they definitely call more when there's other males uh, calling around them. And sometimes they don't call at all. In fact, just now granted, don't, don't no one cite this because it's first year data and we're not done with it. But there was about 35% of the mornings where a Bob White we knew was there would call. The other times they didn't make a sound. Mm. And uh, sometimes they're hinned up uh, so they don't need to call. Mm. And sometimes wow. they're just decided, you know what, I'm just going to be quiet. And mm-hmm. it's infuriating. <laughs> uh, but it's something I wanted to understand a little bit better uh, to make sure we're, we're counting quail appropriately uh 
the other fun thing about this this project, I was tra- the, the the graduate student. I was explaining to her how quail, their breeding strategy. Quail, prolific breeders. You know, they'll they'll breed with one individual, and then that hen will go nest, and that male will go breed with somebody else. So part of the study is she goes out uh, after our morning surveys, and she plays a MP3 player, plays a hen call or a bobwhite call, and tries to attract males into mist nets, these real sheer nylon nets, so we can kind of supplement our sample. And she had a radioed, she had a pair that was radioed, the male and the female radioed, and she she could hear them responding to the call. And she knew the male was with the radioed female. And as soon as she played the MP3 player, he left her and flew right at the net, Hmm. went into the net. And then the female that he left, who was also radioed, started making a lot of vocalizations. And I can only equate it to the same thing uh, a, a wife or a girlfriend might say if they found their boyfriend or husband, you know, get <laughs> caught doing something they shouldn't have been doing. And it was just this clucking, hilarious. So she she calls me later and she tells me what happened. I was like, well, sounds like he got chewed out pretty good. Yeah. And uh, and of course, wow. she banded, you know, got him, made sure his radio was still good and then turned him loose and he went right back with her. Uh, hmm. So just fun things like that you get to learn mm-hmm. uh, in this quote. And that, yeah, we just that's really... That's really interesting about them being quote hand up. I mean, that's a term I've used for as an excuse for years for turkey hunting. Turkeys, yeah, exactly. Never, I yeah. mean, they're both gallinaceous birds, so why not? But and that we only about it. we always assume that was probably some of the case, but and we don't know the extent of really because we don't have all the off, off, all the birds radioed. Yeah. But we had several birds where the male and the female both radioed, and when when they roost together, uh, which is quite often. Uh, another thing we don't we don't know a lot about the roosting ecology in the in the, in the breeding season. And he was stone silent, uh, which smart man he should be. Uh, so, <laughs> so, yeah. so go ahead, Jess. Oh, no, I was just going to say that, you know, this stuff is really important because I don't know how many mornings we were out with our, you know, volunteers that come out and help us on WMAs. And they're like, where are the birds? We know we just saw them or, you know, oh, hunting's going to be terrible this year. It's like, no, I swear to you, we just heard them. There are birds here, you know, and you're right. They just any given the moon might not have been right that night <laughs> you know who yeah. knows why they don't but i think it'll be reinforcing to those of us that get up so many early mornings and uh they're you know, a high maintenance bird yeah it's yeah. just you got to get out there and that's why our volunteers are so important to help out on these calls because we need the rep you know replication um that's it's yeah. really important so it's well it's also like the um you, you also hear old timers often say well you know, the, the predators have weeded out the vocal ones, right? They get, right? Because they, they're singing and, and they've made themselves known for raptors, coyotes, and hunters. So the bobwhites are becoming more and more silent because, you know, they, all the loud ones got eaten. <laughs> so, <laughs> any truth to that theory or is that just a mythology? Well, I- I can tell you, we there, no one's ever tested it directly like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. That I feel like you've been peeking on my list, though, so I'm a little nervous. But because uh, <laughs> I've got a, we're, we're building a, a controlled aviary type situation here at Mississippi State. And that's one of the questions we, we, we were thinking about looking at. Uh, James did publish, Martin did publish a paper not too long ago that looked at uh, lots of years of data with hawks and uh, and Bob White and definitely seems to be probably more of a direct relationship between hawk migration and hawk abundance uh, and just bob we know bob white survival huh. it's always been assumed but it's it's probably a little a more a little clearer 
relationship than, than we probably would have assumed prior to that. But in terms of if it keeps them quiet or not, hard to say. Mm. I can tell you I've been doing a lot of covey counts on properties that have a lot of you know, and hawk migrations really gets going. It seems like sometimes we hear the birds kind of kind of quiet up, but it, this is before we were really radioing them. So hard to say definitively, but uh, it, it'd be curious to know. But then again, what are you going to do about it? You know, uh, <laughs> right. you know, hawks are here to stay. Right. Uh, right. I do. I love I, as much as, you know, people like to get mad at hawks for eating quail. You know, everything eats quail. Sure. So if you're going to get mad, get mad at everything. Hell, I, Tall Timbers had a video of a deer eating eggs out of the nest one time, you know, and, uh, <laughs> James Martin had a bullfrog eat a quail chick. So, you know, what? we can't get mad at everything. Right, right. Uh, all right. Another shout out to our partners at South Dakota Department of Tourism and South Dakota Game, Fish, and Parks. Uh, win a South Dakota hunt the greatest giveaway, and you can get an epic pheasant hunt of your own in free Shields gear. Enter for your chance to win at Hunt the greatest.com so south dakota season is uh it got a number of weeks yet to go so so be sure to enter into the website to win that shields gear and um also check out late season pheasant hunting in south dakota all right mark the the third research project you got working is a it, it's a little bit more complex very hardcore habitat um, research project that measures burning, chemical treatment, and response from birds. So let's dive into that one a little deeper and tell me about that one. Yeah, this is the first one I started when I got to Mississippi State, uh, and I've got a PhD student working on this. We, we're really trying to figure out a way to get rid of a, an exotic invasive, uh, Cerecia lespedeza. It is a rough, rough, rough uh, plant, and, and, and quail biologists years ago, uh, actually recommended it get planted, uh, for, for, for Bob White. And, and it turned out to be a mistake and, you know, we've, we've all made those, uh, it's a really rough plant and it is, can really, is there but, a common name for it? Jess, I think it was called Cerecia, right? Yeah, that okay. is the common name. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I've never heard it called anything else. Uh, yep. and it's rough. It will take over a site and it will dominate. It can really exploit low, uh, or uh, acidic soils, where like a lot of the plants can, it's just, it's just a great invader. And, uh, I've got a property that, uh, that I, I consult on in, in North Mississippi, that's got a ton of it in a, in a pretty low basal area of pine forest. That, and, and on, not only that, we've got Cerecia and then, uh, I can't remember the scientific name, but call it a Japanese stilt grass. I don't remember what the exact name is. Hmm. So it's two exotics there and they kind of dominate the entire understory. And, uh, there have been some great research out of, uh, um, well, Jared Brooke did it. I can't remember if he was when he was at Tennessee or when he was at Purdue, but really good research looking at different ways to to knock this stuff back with chemical and fire. And I wanted to look at that again, but I also wanted to, and they compared the vegetation and, and I wanted to, how it responded. I wanted to give the Bob White a chance to tell us something. So we're using imprinted uh, chicks and we're going to let them do 30 minute forward, if they make it 30 minutes, these foraging trials. We'll go to these treatments where we've Done a bunch of different chemical and burn combos, the different timings and different chemicals, and and then look and then let them revegetate for a year, and then after that response, go out there with the bobwhite chicks, turn them loose, let them forage, call them back to us, take them back to the lab, 
they'll be ethically euthanized. And then we examine how much, how much vertebrates they've got huh. in their, in their, in their crop. Uh, so it'll give us an idea of the, how much biomass they could intake in a, let's say a 30 minute foraging trial. So it gives us a foraging rate hmm. and then we'll look at that. So, okay. Which one of these treatments actually let the chicks do as good as they could do. And if, and if that, and if that was the, and then we're going to look at the economics of each one of those applications and say, all right, where's the cost benefit break off, right? Do you, sure. do you get this much more foraging benefit for the extra $30 an acre, or can you just spray Roundup and light it on fire and be just as good? And we wanted to give landowners an idea of the cheapest way to take care of this, this terrible, terribly, terribly invasive plant that is quite, I can't remember the, the number, but it, it's everywhere in the Southeast, at least. I, I can't think yep. of many places I don't see it. Uh, so yeah, that that one's a really fun one. So we actually start those foraging trials this uh, this summer. So we're really excited about that. Huh. So do you have a hypothesis on what's going to come out as the best case scenario for for landowners? I do, but I don't want to say it yet because if I'm wrong, I'm going to look silly. And I'm a big proponent of not uh, not putting out any information until I can back it up because uh-huh. I'd hate for that to get somebody do it because they sure. think I'm right. Sure. And uh, me be wrong. So, uh, but, but it's a lot of different combos with fire and two different chemicals roundup and uh, which is glyphosate. Mm-hmm. And then I can't remember the brand name we use, but triclopyr is the chemical that we use, which has been shown to really work very well, but it's more expensive than, than roundup. So we, uh, we want to look at that. So do you, in an experiment like this, what's your control? Do you, do you like, take uh, those same chicks and let them go into a place that you didn't touch and see what they yeah, we've, forage Yeah, we've got seven treatments and a control. We've got those replicated about 10 times across this property and each one. And we could have done the control as like a spring, February, March burn, which is what a lot of people do in, mm. in the pine woods. But but we've got that as one of the treatments. And then, uh, But I've got a true control where we didn't touch it. And honestly, I don't know if the chicks will even be able to walk in it. It's wow. so thick. Huh. Uh, we've my my PhD student have a bet on how far the chicks can actually make it uh, before we have to call it off and say you, you can't you can't walk through this. That, that's how thick this stuff is. Uh, yeah. So this is the nine non biologist. So I, I'm I'm fine throwing out there a theory because nobody expects me to be right anyways. <laughs> but but my my assumption here right is that the control, like you say, these the chicks are not going to be able to get in there. And it's going to be minuscule, but the the variability between all the different applications is probably going to be marginally different. Um, that and it is going to come down to cost, in that it's going to produce. You know, they're going to be able to at least they're going to be able to get in there and forage and get something. And the the amount of biomass is probably not going to be dramatically different. So that's from a marketing guy. So, well, that's exactly why we put the cost stuff in there. Cause yeah. I, I, I didn't want it to be left in the situation where I do whatever you want. I right. wanted to be able to say, well, let's, let's not spend any more money than we've got to. One of the treatments we do a, a spring burn, which is really, it, it actually helps stimulate the mm-hmm. uh, germination of Cerecia and the sea banks. There's decades of it in, in this property. And then we hit it with herbicide and then we come back and burn it again uh, after all the vegetation is dead. So that one gets burned twice in the same year. I don't know how many landowners are going to be willing to do that. Right. But uh, I can tell you, if you've ever walked through and done a veg plot through this plant, there's nothing more thrilling than seeing it dead 
and get burned again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very therapeutic. Yeah. All right. That brings us to research project number four. And you've touched on, on this um, topic a number of times in every single podcast we ever do on quail comes back to one, well, two words, prescribed fire. Prescribed fire, again, for this marketing guy, it's been beating it. I might, I might have forgotten Dr. Elmore's, you know, brush importance, but I won't forget fire. Because, <laughs> uh, so, so talk about HOA plantation and what you're trying to measure related to prescribed fire on your, um, your fourth research project going on. Yeah, so Ichue and Jess, did you do your work at Ichue? I can't remember. I did. Yeah, okay. that's where I did my also, PhD work. Yeah, awesome they, uh, place. Just one of the coolest places in in the world. Uh, Twenty nine thousand something acres mm. of, yep. of longleaf pine. Uh, just a gorgeous property, managed brilliantly. Their their management staff is just un, just superior than to, to most I've ever dealt with. They they do a lot of fire, frequent fire, small scale fires. They do a lot of stuff for quail. They have a really solid quail population. I don't. I think we're the first project to put radios on quail there. I, I, I'm I fairly believe so. Yep. Uh, so we were really fortunate to be involved, but because it's such a we call it pyrically adapted system, but a, a landscape that evolved with fire and is still maintained with fire. We uh, we they wanted to, they they you know Ichiway Plantation. They wanted their staff wanted to some basic information like all right, what's the survival rate? What's the nesting? And they wanted to get all the basics. And we're like, yeah, let's do that. But we've got such a cool opportunity here. So the graduate student was just in here earlier today and we were mapping out some of it. One of the things I'm really curious about, and I think I've, you know, made him curious about it, is after a prescribed fire or during a prescribed fire, if a, if a quail's in an area you're about to burn, where do they go during that fire? Mm-hmm. We know they don't stay in the fire, obviously, but how far do they go? And how far, how long till they, till they get back? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then because if you've ever done a prescribed fire, especially in the deep south, uh, there's a lot of, uh, freshly barbecued insects on the ground out there and birds really like those. I've, I've, <laughs> I've watched quail go into these units and eat fried grasshoppers. And, yeah. and I just want to understand a little bit more mm. about what they're doing. And uh, so it's a little bit looking how they respond during the fire, but then also looking at, okay, we, we think they're probably going to go in a little bit at the beginning and eat some bugs, but there's very little vegetation out there. At some point there's going to be a risk there, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're vulnerable to predation. So I, I'm curious, do they go in for a little bit at the beginning and then do they stay away? And then as that vegetation starts to grow back, how much more frequently do they start to use that site? And I just want to understand that relationship a little bit better because it speaks to the scale at which we burn, uh, how many acres next to each other we can burn in time. Like we, we, we try to patch it up. So Bob White always have some good cover to go into that's unburned. Uh, but yeah, I just, it's a lot of cool questions we can ask there. And, uh, Itchaway has been just incredibly wonderful to us and invited us in to work with them. And I, I just can't speak enough well enough about their scientific staff and their management staff. I'm thinking people just burn in it on a level that's just something to be admired. And Jess, when you were at Itchaway, what did you study? I was looking at gopher tortoise population health um, and, you know, how they use habitat. And, you know, Itchaway is also kind of like utopia for gopher tortoises. There's many papers written on it and i was happy to add to that but uh you know in terms of what it was it's been well maintained um uh, it's really incredible so yeah to to see bob white work going on there just really i think puts a nice bow on everything they do there 
at the Jones Center. Huh. And you talked about, we, we, we made the connection between Bob White's and gopher tortoises, but what's the benefit for prescribed fire to gopher tortoises? So it's all the same reasons that we talk about for quail uh, movement, protection. Uh, so, you know, the juvenile uh, gopher tortoises, especially hatchlings, just like Bob White, everything wants to eat it. Um, there's been lots of predation studies and, uh, you know, they're, they need that cover, they, but they also need to forage through. And when you go into good gopher tortoise habitat, you'll see trails out amongst the grass. Uh, they need that high diversity of grass. So, you know, they're looking more for the vegetation aspects of it, where that habitat's also great for a bug in for Bob White, you know, as Mark was talking about. So it's kind of, uh, again, managing for one benefits the sure. other. They, they just use it in different ways and they need that mobility through the landscape as well. Um, when it gets really thatchy and um, invasive species start coming in, uh, nutritional value goes down for everything and you just can't, you can't move through there. You know, I, I know I don't want to walk through there. Sure. <laughs> and uh, they don't. And, and the deep south, it, if you stop, if you take fire off the landscape, it, it's going to succeed mm -hmm. naturally mm -hmm. into more tr more trees, more hardwood trees, yep. and it's going to it's going to very quickly no longer be gopher tortoise or bobwhite habitat. And that's why the frequency of the fire is is so important to to, to both those species. So yeah. maybe an ignorant question, but gopher tortoise during a fire. You know, you're measuring bobwhite quail. What? Where do they go when mm -hmm. there's a fire? Well, they have wings. A tortoise doesn't move very fast. Do they right. go down into the air raid shelter? And they do. They, okay. <laughs> yeah, they typically, you know, don't go too far away from their burrows. They're very loyal to their burrows. They might have ten across the landscape, which helps them. So if they get mm -hmm. a little far out um, foraging, they'll have another burrow to duck under, or you know, a downed log. Just like birds, you know, you'll find birds kind of hiding under a log every now and then. So uh, it's it's pretty it's very similar. Hmm. Hmm. Highly yep. adaptable. Yep. Uh, if you were to Google, the listener were to Google Mark's name, uh, one of the first things that would come up. <laughs> <I'll> do that. <laughs> that was priceless. Hypothetically, you and images do images, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, that's the downside of us not uh, um, showing the video that goes with. Let me do this these, real quick. See what I'm up these against. audio podcasts, <laughs> but uh, precision agriculture and in in Mark's name um, are are really synonymous, um, and that's like you mentioned. You've spoken at our national board of directors. You've been part of. Uh, all team meetings. I think you've been at Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic right. talking about precision ag. And I know we've, we've focused a lot on um, the research projects you have going on with Bob White Quail, but I'm also curious about the, the connection again between the two. You know, we've talked about the overlap between Bob White's and gopher tortoises. Let's, let's, uh, let's marry the two passions that you, you are working on from a research perspective, precision agriculture, and and bob white quail what's uh what's the symbiosis there yeah that's a great question um the precision ag is, is kind of a term for all the different 
fancy tools we have in agriculture now. Everything from GPS yield monitors to variable rate application to, I mean, hell, they're, they're, I talked to some people yesterday, they're spraying uh, pesticides with drones, uh, mm. you know, across the field, fixed wing drones, you know, going across the field and dropping chemical this spot, not that spot. So it's just, an, it's just using technology to farm better and farm smarter in terms of on a, you know, not wasting inputs, you know, and, and putting stuff where it goes. The aspect of precision ag that we really have latched onto is these GPS yield monitors. They give us the ability to tell us where in a field uh, it's not doing so good. Hmm. And farmers typically know where their parts of their field aren't doing so good, but we get to put a number on it. And, and that number is sometimes uh, shocking to both them and, and us. So what, we, what we're doing with precision agriculture, the reason I got into it from the quail world is because for my master's degree, Wes Berger had been kind of using this approach uh, to figure out, okay, where can we put conservation practices through the farm bill? And, uh, you know, the 96 farm bill, we got the continuous CRP practice. We got all these buffer practices and we didn't have to enroll the whole field. And you got all these different options to make conservation more flexible uh, in, in these, in these row crop landscapes. And Wes, Wes's approach was, well, if you're going to do it, you should be able to do it in an area that's going to make you money, not lose money. Mm-hmm. And the idea to take land out of production to a lot of farmers is, is pretty foreign. Like how can you make more money with less acreage? But the farm bill provides all these financial incentives and, and rental payments to, to help you do that. So we just wanted to use that technology to figure out exactly where in the field uh, a farmer could make more money with a conservation payment maybe for quail habitat, but whatever the farmer wants, it's their land. They want to plant it to trees, uh, more power to them. Um, I typically like the grass and quail practices, but I'm obviously biased as I tell landowners all the time. And so we just wanted to be able to compare those things. So we, uh, we started doing this years ago and I've had one, two, three, I'm on my fourth graduate student uh, using this technology now. And what we've done is we've created a, a software program that essentially allows somebody like Andy or many of the, or Jess or any of the farm bill uh, biologists that QFPF employ uh, to sit down with a farmer. If they've got some yield data, they plug it into our software and they can sit down with them and, and plug in which conservation practice they think fits on their property, which one they're interested in from their objectives, if it's water quality, if it's quail, if it's pheasants, you name it. And it'll actually output in under two minutes. Mm. That's from start to finish. Mm. Uh, it'll tell them where on their farm they can make more money through a USDA Farm Bill Conservation Program than farming. And we, we built this mainly for one reason. We wanted farmers, if they were going to enroll in conservation, we want them to be able to do it in a profitable manner and give the farmer the ability to take the guesswork, take the uncertainty out of what's going to happen if I take this half acre out, mm-hmm. right? The reason a quail biologist got into this was a great deal of the landscape is is in row crop agriculture mm-hmm. in the United States and a lot of the quail country and pheasant countries in, in row crop systems. And I was trying to think of the best impact my career or trying to have an imp- my career have an impact on the landscape. And I said, well, I could work in these smaller areas that probably have quail, but I'd rather make quail where quail aren't mm. where quail used to be, but there aren't anymore. And uh, this gives us a way, one of the many tools we can use to implement conservation in a way that makes a farmer make more money. And when, and I, I, I approach farmers from the economic angle, I, I usually stop and I'll say, I'm not here to sell you quail. I'm here to make you more money. And if I can do that and we get quail as a secondary objective, we all win. So if, if I'm uh, transcribing your words, I would just take my highlighter out and highlight like the last three sentences there, because I think there, there's so many folks in the quail world that that would be heartened to hear a person in your position say, you know, I, I want to make quail where quail used to be and maybe aren't today and look for ways to do that in 
harmony with agriculture and get more quail out there on the landscape that you know it's so easy and and this is something that andy is is really held up as a totem in his role Um, but it's so easy to be downtrodden in the quail world and and to lose hope. And I, I won't steal your thun, thunder, Andy. I'll, I'll pass the Man. baton to you because I know this no, is this is pa- this is what you're passionate about, this infusion of hope. There's a lot of people sure. putting money, talent, science, and you know, their entire careers into turning the tide here. That's right. Yeah, I, I think I, I do. And I'm, I'm really proud you remembered that, Bob. It's just, I mean, that's heartening right there. But like restoring the hope, like we do have to do that as a, you know, as an organization that really is passionate about, you know, the sport of quail hunting uh, and, and upland habitat. Um, but but I think we're we're putting forward a not a false bill of goods. I, I was a little nervous. I'll be honest. Ten years ago, I thought, man, can we do this? And now, like, that's all gone for me because I know we have realistic goals. We're focusing our efforts. We're, we're intensively working on areas where we've got quail populations and, and doing great. You know, we're doing the right kind of habitat manipulations to keep birds out on the landscape. But also, this new frontier um, that Mark's been talking about with Precision Ag, what it's done is just like he said, you're not approaching a producer with, hey, we want to chit up. You know, you might not care about wildlife habitat. We want you to set aside some ground for us. No, you're saying, hey, look, uh, your return on investment in this field could be greater if you were to employ these conservation practices. Just so happens they're really beneficial for quail. And that message, you know, I I, I seem to have been involved in that a bunch lately, uh, twice this week, actually. But I saw um, uh, in some of our packs, our, our precision ag conservation specialists are using um experiment with some of your your stuff and and using it out on the landscape and um i saw it applied in west tennessee this week and pretty straightforward you're going to lose this much if you you know over three years you've lost this much on this field uh you know it might be six seven hundred dollars if you were to just put in five percent of that you're actually going to gain fifteen hundred dollars on that same field Hmm. you know um a couple thousand dollar turnaround it's pretty easy to convince folks uh, and then there's a lot of wildlife that are going to benefit as a result. So it's really exciting. Uh, and it's kind of opened for us as an organization, both Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, uh, the frontier on commodity uh, partnerships, you know, yep. chemical companies, seed producers, um, um, nutrient management groups, that sort of thing. So it's really interesting. Yeah, it's funny you say, Rick, restoring the hope. I, I've been involved in quail conservation since maybe 2005, 2006, when I first started to get into it, and then professionally since 2008. I have never seen as much enthusiasm for quail on the landscape yep. as I have right now. And I'm sure plenty of biologists over time have said that here at different times, but it just seems like it no, just I, seems like it's it's cool to like quail again. And uh, and it's, it's I, I agree, yeah. And I don't think so. I don't I don't I didn't feel that, you know, starting out in about two thousand, you know, early two thousands, you know, uh, I felt pretty for the first eight or ten years. It's a little downtrodden. And uh, but I do feel it right now. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff going on. Yeah, and this precision stuff the, is just one it's just one tool in the arsenal. There's so yeah. many tools we have now to right. to attack to attack this across the landscape and uh and 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 like i said i wish there was a place that farmers could not just farmers but i work a lot with farmers 
could just see all the opportunities in front of them and know how much money they're leaving all they're they're missing out on, especially through the farm bill. Uh, yeah. There's just so much opportunity. Well, you know, USDA and RCS, they're, they're really committed to seeing Bob White habitat improve and numbers improve, you know, and they're putting a lot of money out there. Um, and it's been great to see, you know, precision ag used on the landscape and see, you know, it's multi-generational and you got grandpa out there that says, you know, I never used to farm that. And then, you know, the grandson now is like, well, I just needed to see it on paper. You know, mm. they just need to see that mapped out. And, you know, and they don't, they don't take, <laughs> take the, you know, recommendation. They, they want to see it. Um, the numbers and, you know, it's just a difference in how farming is now. And, you know, it's very uh, numbers, numbers driven mm. and technology is out there. And I just think it's great. And a lot of our partnerships are making this data more accessible to our mm -hmm. landowners. And that's just helping our biologists get more habitat on the ground too, because now it's a more realistic thing. And we have great maps to show um, producers and convince them that there is a reason your grandfather didn't, you know, farm that uh, 20 acres and here's oh. why. And, you know, we can kind of get it all back around and get them, you know, talking well, about it at the dinner table again. Yeah. And, and I'm a map nerd, admittedly. So looking at those maps, though, I, I looked at one this week. We did a presentation uh, for a company, and it was so obvious where the fence row used to be in that field <laughs> based on the yield data. I mean, you just as red as it could be in a perfectly straight line going along the, a line of the of the existing field. And and. I didn't mention it. We didn't mention it in the presentation, but the actual manager for this company, he, he brought it out and he said, you see that line right there? He said, we all know where that fence rows are not productive. And so we lower our, we, we lower our, our seed population there. And we, we don't put as much product on that. Like we already do that on purpose. And it was like, just kind of became clear to me on how that's mutually beneficial. Like the producer can, can see that the, the people that are selling the product to the producer knows like, there's no need of me charging you more to put stuff there because it's not ever going to be beneficial. So why not put it into a program? And so that was, that was kind of a, a, a light bulb moment for me, but uh, this, you know, working with them, it's amazing to me that I, I just didn't know. It's just an ignorance for what that we can do now, but they can go during that growing season, sample the tissue of the plant that's growing and tell what micronutrients it's lacking all over the field and then apply those micronutrients on a very, very small scale. Uh, that just blew my mind. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting. So yeah, the, the, the amount of data. Yeah. The, the technology's here, the wildlife community, we, we gotta, we're trying to keep up now with, with the, the ag industry technology and all these new combines, hell, not just the new ones, but any combine purchased in recent history, mm -hmm. they've got an onboard computing system. I, I have a slide when I get presentations and this isn't your grandfather's tractor anymore. Right. Mm, yeah. You know, even when I was farming, we didn't have, you know, CD player and radio XM radio <laughs> in the cab, you know, right. you know, so it, it yeah. so we, they've all got that now and they've already, they're already looking at a computer and uh, might as well put something on there that, you know, show them a map. Like you're saying, Andy, these maps are really cool. These profit maps, show them a map oh, that shows amazing. them how to make more money. And when you take that profit map that they've seen and you put a conservation practice on it and show them how that, that stuff that was red just turned green. I think that's, mm -hmm. I think that's one of the, the slogans mm -hmm. y'all use, turn red acres green. It, yep. uh, I wish I had to come up with it. <laughs> it's, 
it's it's a lot of fun. Like I said, we've we've done this. We've done it over hundreds of fields now, different simulations. We have a paper coming out in the Journal of Precision Agriculture very soon. And on average, across 52 fields we looked at, uh, on average, we can make more money on 71% of those fields with conservation. Hmm. And across those fields, on average, it was about a 26% increase uh, in profitability. Uh, now that it ranged higher than that and lower than that, but that's not bad. Uh, so you maybe didn't come up with turn red acres green, but you, you created our next t-shirt and you maybe don't even know it. It's cool to like quail again. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I honestly wish I could take credit for that one too. I, I actually heard you, Bob, you'll appreciate this. A marketing guy told, told me that. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, I, you know, the last five minutes, that's all I've been thinking about in my head. Like, what's the graphic design for that? <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to go to closing thoughts and do around the horn. But before I do, I want to, Mark, if, if people are listening, and obviously, you know, there's a huge audience of Quail Forever members and Quail Hunters that are tuning in. If they have questions that they've always wondered about do you do you add to that list of research projects like if somebody wanted to feed you like their quail research idea could they email you and get on that list and maybe there's an application for the future oh absolutely look i don't i don't pretend for a minute that I, I don't need help coming up with ideas. I need all the help I can get. Uh, I can't promise the law make it to the list, but uh, but yeah, the I I I've I found that if I've had any success in my life, it's because I've surrounded myself with people that are smarter than me, and uh, and so bring on the ideas. We're we're here to help. How do they How do they drop you an idea via email? Maybe. Yeah. Well, you can you can Google Mark McConnell, Mississippi State, and get my email address, but it's uh, mdm380 at msstate.edu. Perfect. Thank you. I won't give them office lines. I don't ever answer that. But, uh, <laughs> they can email me. <laughs> awesome. Well, folks, he's he's a, a bird hunter, precision egg, quail scientist. Um, there's a whole world of ideas that um, I know that are out there burning in people's brain and fire up that list. Who knows? You know, maybe the next grad student will uh, take up that idea and become something that produces habitat and more birds on the landscape. Um, all right, let's go around the horn. And Mark, since you're our guest, you're going to be last. Uh, you get final words. Um, we'll start with Andy, go to Jess and, and close her out with Mark. So I, I probably stole Andy's final words earlier by talking about hope, but I know you. I know you. Wooly Mammoth can come up with a Bob, a good closing know, there's, Yeah, if there's anything you know about me. You know, I, I don't, don't have any shortage for words, so um, it might not make any sense, but I'll put them together. So you know, I, I think just to continue on that thought of you know now being the great time for for quail. Um, I think Clay Sisson even said that uh, last year down in Georgia was right now are the good old days for quail. Uh, in Georgia. So we've got, uh, it, it's been interesting for me and I'm absolutely biased, but to see since I got here in 2006 in the Southeast, us grow the organization. Uh, we put our first biologist on the ground in 2013 in Tennessee. And then we started adding dots on the map, uh, if you will, in the Southeast and the Bob White quail range, but also out in the, in the Western quail ranges. And, um, you know, We've got really great state 
and federal partners right now. Uh, we've got really great partnerships with the researchers uh, that are doing great quail work. And we're just kind of checking off the problems. We're checking off the, the concern list and turning those into positives. And so uh, I'm excited to see what the future holds. Uh, I am hopeful. I really am. But, you know, we're, we're pretty close to 100 employees in the, in the quail range right now. Uh, so, something that blew my mind as an organization the other day, we're getting ready for a staff meeting. Haven't had one in a, in a couple of years, you know, the, the old C19 got in the way of that. And, uh, we are getting together in May in person. And since our Iowa meeting in 2019, we've added 188 employees. Mm. Uh, that blew my mind. <laughs> we're about to add another 50 in the quail range between now and maybe, maybe May. Uh, but at least least by the end of June. And so we're putting those people on the ground in strategic places with strategic partnerships at the right time. I'm pretty jacked up for what it looks like. It's going to be great. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a statement, you know, another 50 employees working on yeah, quail. Scary. Yeah. <clears throat> that's yeah. that's scary great. That's awesome. It is. It is, man. Like, you remember when? You, you remember that time we added 50 people in like yeah. 6 months and Je- and Jess's head almost exploded. Yeah, I was thinking Jess. <laughs> Jess, Jess, you got a lot of interviews coming up. I I do. Yes, I do. I think I I need to go get some become HR, part of HR team or something. But no, it, you know, he's right. It's expanding fast and it's exciting and um, we we're bringing on a lot of great new talent that's, you know, really eager to work hard for the resource. And, uh, you know, sometimes working with landowners, it isn't easy. Um, they don't always see what we see and it's a process and it's about building relationships and providing them with the tools, um, that we have at our fingertips so they can make good decisions. And I think that's why a lot of these partnerships and collaborations and, just the focus on working lands for wildlife by a number of partners is really critical um, to get habitat on the ground and show people why it's good to do so. And, you know, it's, it's going to be good for their bottom line. Sure. But it's also, you know, good for moving forward and keeping these resources on the ground and available and getting out, be able to keep hunting this little bird, you know, that we have so much fun following around and missing, but, um, I think, you know, we're, it, we do have a lot of momentum right now and we just, we need everybody to just grab on and come along with us and keep supporting it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fun right now. Right on. Yeah. All right. Mark. My next, I'll just wrap up and say, look, the, if you've never seen or held a quail, it's impossible not to fall mm. in love with them. They're just, their story is, is quail history is American history. And it's a, tremendously romantic story uh from from the earliest accounts to now and there's been like any good story there's frustrations along the way and then you know a lot of successes along the way and we're at a time now where like like i said especially through y'all's organization with partnerships through the ngos the industry the research organizations you know around the country uh it's, it's a great time to be involved in quail so you know call a biologist grab a gun, light a fire, you know, <laughs> yep. get a dog and enjoy what you've got. And, uh, and, you know, let's just, let's keep the progress moving forward. Right on. That's right. Be cool. <laughs> Be cool and like quail. <laughs> yeah. uh, Mark, thank you so much for spending 
all your time with us today and, and uh, you know, beyond that for being such a great collaborative partner. Um, and yeah, some of these research projects come to fruition and you start to learn. I'd love for you to, you know, give me a heads up and get you back on the podcast and kind of close the loop on what you're learning. And if you start a new, really innovative study, I know that our listeners would love to hear what's happening out on the research front. You know, it's funny, Bob, the best way to get me to talk about research is, you know, walking through some quail cover with the dog. <laughs> or, uh, so. I just so yeah. I talk so much more in detail. Than that happens. In, in so. your, uh, pheasant, I bet you would even in pheasant cover, you'd probably talk. Too. <laughs> yeah, pheasant cover, too. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm not thinking. And your poodle pointer will be in prime uh, two, three years from now. And uh, all yeah. the fruits of your habitat work uh, research will show up. That's right. So <laughs> y'all just let me know when y'all need a hand. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you all for having me. For Andy Edwards, for Jess McGuire, I'm Bob St. Pierre, thanking you for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast and reminding you, always follow the dot. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>